When I talk about trauma, I'm essentially talking about an injury that necessitated a response. That's how I define trauma when I teach it. And what I mean by that is anything that injured you that you had to cope against or respond to. So that could be a cut in the finger, right? Ouch! You know, and then you have to put a band-aid on and it hurts a bit and you don't use the finger for a little while. So that's a response to an injury. And that response to the injury initially creates a certain kind of a movement, reaction, emotional, physical pattern. And hopefully as the, as the cut heals, that relaxes and goes away. That would be the ideal situation. Also, if you have an injury of a physical kind, the body immediately counteracts that like that thing that happens, the, the fight or flight that comes with it by shaking it out afterwards. But of course, when that's not possible because you're under prolonged, let's say, du duress, and it's not just a physical injury, but an emotional and there's other stuff going on, and you don't get to do the thing that the body knows how to do, then that congeals into a, what then is called a trauma pattern. It's a, it's a complete conglomerate of emotional, physical, mental um, coping that creates a pattern. And then that pattern gets accessed any time something fairly similar shows up, which is what's then called a trauma trigger. So that particular situation can happen with a physical injury. You might not have emotional trauma around it, or you might because it was very shocking and you were in the hospital and things like that. But it can happen, of course, with emotional stuff, sexual stuff, physical stuff, spiritual stuff. Some people have massive spiritual trauma um, or societal trauma or combination thereof. And so those trauma patterns create a kind of a hold in the body that uh, that can create chronic or acute fight flight freeze and then there's a fourth one which now they call fawn i'll tell you about that in a second and so those patterns then can either um you know they how should i say this they can be constant because it happened over and over and over and it's now a pattern uh, it can be a pattern that gets accessed by other things, so it still happens like that. It can also be um, that the trauma response was built in as, pass, as part of the coping, and then that's just how the, the human exists, right? So, for instance, a lot of, you see this sometimes, people are like this, uh, kind of just like, whoa, this hypervigilant, like, you know, flat affects, very, very little blinking, that's a permanent freeze response. And um, that permanent freeze response was the coping mechanism that's now built in. And so that kind, the entire trauma realm, making this super simple, um, simply so that you can see the barriers. So that entire trauma realm, of course, then throws up the behaviors <laughs> This is the modern-day saber-toothed tiger. <laughs> um, so that throws up behaviors that, of course, block normal engagement with life quite substantially, either when something gets triggered or chronically. So that, that whole trauma realm is quite interesting when you look at 
pleasure because not everybody who has a hard time with pleasure, not only sexual, but, you know, like I said, sensual and aliveness, um, has trauma, but often the trauma um, is, is one of the reasons why it can't fully bloom, right? Or I should say not everybody with trauma can't feel pleasure, but oftentimes uh, the lack of feeling pleasure is as a result of trauma, let's put it this way. So um, with that all said, I just want to say in the, in the trauma realm, of course, fight and flight are fairly easy to spot, right? Um, you can tell when somebody's super aggressive. Um, sometimes you see that in workshops when people get like some, somehow triggered, they get like crazy gnarly, right? So that's easy to tell. Aggression is, is easy to tell. And when somebody gets into that kind of aggression mode, you can tell. Uh, this is also true with partners. And you, you can kind of get out of the way till it de-escalates. Or if you know what you're doing, you can de-escalate it uh, as well. Flight's also fairly easy to spot because people are just out of there, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, it's like, okay, you know where this is going. They're gone before you even figure out what the hell just happened. And that's one good, of course, a good mechanism to get out of harm's way. Not conducive to relationship or human connection or well-being or pleasure, but, you know, a good coping strategy nonetheless that the body wants employed. Freeze is an interesting one because freeze is actually one of those really amazing human mechanisms that's served humankind for a long time. Because guess what freeze is about? Freeze is the mechanism that allowed humans to hunker down in open land or in brushland or in the back of a cave in moments of extreme danger. So if you imagine that you have to, you know, there's marauding tribes or, you know, whatever, you have to hide. The body has to do a very specific thing to hide, let's say, in tall grass. So first thing that happens, immobilize the body. Check, right? Then next thing is um, downregulate the system for both the immobilization, but also to slow down the metabolism, also to slow down the breathing. The next thing then that happens is flat affect, meaning you don't move the face watch so that you're not in the bushes and you're like, you know, where your eyes and your teeth and everything's visible. And then the next thing is no blinking, right? So, so that's why you see this kind of frozen thing is that comes from blending into the undergrowth, so to speak, and being able to hang there. And when people get sensitive in nonlinear, you often hear this from people, people get sensitive to their freeze mechanism, they can actually feel that numbness in the legs, which is typically the first thing that happens. Um, and, then, and then all the other stuff that comes. Often when people um, have to go to the emergency room, let's say it was an accident or an assault or something, um, freeze actually slows the, the system down, your blood pressure is down, your heartbeat is low, and that's for many, many years been misdiagnosed in emergency rooms. Now they have emergency uh, room education around what happens in the frozen body, so to speak. And that's, often that's called shock as well. You, you've heard that before. So that's freeze for you. And the freeze is an interesting one because 
one of the really interesting things in freeze, remember I was saying that in fight or flight, the executive function gets essentially cut off, executive thinking function gets cut off. In freeze, you actually feel totally zen. You feel cool. All is good. You're handling it. If you've ever in a very stressful situation gone, wow, I feel fine. <laughs> I'm handling this surprisingly well. Guess what? That's, you know, textbook freeze. Because you don't want to have, you don't want to freak out when you're frozen in the, in the, in the you know, with a weed somewhere. So it feels fine. And that feeling fine is a profound numbness that um, some people take for being enlightened, but that's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm joking, but it isn't, it's in that, in that um, realm. And then fawn, I just want to say that as a last one, when I went to university, it wasn't called fawn, but now, of course, where everything has to be Instagram snippet worthy, we have fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. Um, in the olden days, fawn was called Stockholm Syndrome, which is the need to align with your aggressor for survival. Right? And that's, that's a whole other story that has nothing to do with embodiment, but I just wanted to mention it because you hear it. So when we look at embodiment and embodiment practices amongst the nonlinear movement, but also the things you did with Steve, which is called the movement koan, um, are ways to get under those mechanisms. There are also ways to empty the cup, but there are ways to get under those mechanisms and unfreeze the system and clean the gunk out of the cup, so to speak. Uh, but often when we start that process, of sensitizing, um, you'll first see the gunk, feel the gunk, feel the panic, feel the anger, feel the fight, feel the flight, you know, like feel all of those things. And then as they wash out, you get a really good connection with your system and you can actually hear what's needed. And then um, parallel to that, wash out, you know, old stuck trauma and things, but also build up the system to be kind of a resonant body of life and pleasure and vitality. And, and with that, very often you'll see when people engage in that process, their sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system can actually start working together. And then there is that option of having intense stress, let's say, and then completely de-escalating because that always goes together. Oh. Um, you know, my favorite example is, of course, always um, I was a total, you know, nut for a National Geographic, like, uh, you know, African savanna kind of stuff. And you always see, it's always this, the classic example is, I don't know, lion chases wildebeest. You know, poor wildebeest gets away with big scratches on its ass, but it gets away. And then you cut to the wildebeest standing somewhere in the bushes, post-attack, alive but shocked. And you see the entire wildebeest like this, right? and it's shaking and it's shaking and it's shaking. And the camera, you know, back then they didn't do fast camera cuts. Um, now you wouldn't ever see that in its entirely. But you see it shaking, 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 shaking. And then at some point there's one last shake and then there's this flick of the tail. And then the wildebeest just walks off and starts eating. Right? And that's the classic 
mammalian fight, flight, feed, breathe response. You survive, you shake it out, you get the adrenaline out of your body, you, you essentially counteract uh, the things congealing and then you move on to relaxing and feeding and breathing and all of that. That's interrupted in humans and that's one of the main reasons why um, you know, pleasure on a very deep level and also vitality and, and, and ability is interrupted because there's a whole bunch of stuff that hasn't washed out. So it kind of gunks up the system. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the underpinning um, of what we're doing. The interesting thing about this is even though we're talking about it because it's good to understand this, that you can't armchair these activities, meaning you have to actually do them in the body. Um, you can't think your way into relaxation. Um, you can't get the body to learn new patterns by just sitting there and doing the old patterns. And that's why we always intersperse in a nonlinear movement or movement call. We'll, we'll do some completely different things in the next few days as well so that the entire thing kind of gets um, explored and then from there you can wash out what can be washed out or you, ha you know what you're working with if it's a long-term situation. And you can also uh, tailor your practices so that for your body the right practices are in place. No, it's not cup apnea. Uh, as a matter of fact, for most people, holotropic uh, breathing has a profoundly adrenalizing effect. Um, and that can, that can have benefits. So there is some real benefits to being hyperadrenalized. For instance, um, when you have that adrenal spike, uh, you, your immune system kicks in quite strongly, right? So that's also why ice baths are so good. When you do an ice bath, you get this big spike in adrenal function that gives you a real boost in the immune system. There's other things that make ice bath. So like this kind of like very, very aggressive breathing stuff can have that effect. And um, there is some applications for that, particularly in high performance sport. But if you have trauma in the body or if you have, let's say, a weak adrenal system or your sex hormones are getting a bit funky because you're perimenopausal or your postpartum or stuff like that. It's typically not a good thing to do because it kind of fries an already fried system further. Now, holotropic breathing, as you probably know, was developed by a man named Stanislav Grof, who was kind of a genius in, um, in a time where the game was to find out um, how to produce kind of peak experiences, peak states in humans, right? It was the time where people experimented with LSD and, you know, you know all, all the things that came during that time where, where people were looking, how can we expand consciousness? And so from the context of expanding consciousness in the, the same way that you would do an ayahuasca journey or... Uh, you know, a therapeutic MDMA treatment or uh, climbing Mount Everest or something like that. That's really useful, but certainly not as an ongoing practice. And so that's always the important thing to know. There's very few practices are bad, period. What's typically bad is when it gets cultish, 
right? Like when it's not the practice that's the thing, but it's the leader of the practice who does the thing, that makes the thing, that makes you feel like you're belonging somewhere where then wonderful things happen in the amazing community. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the practice in itself. There's very few practices that are period, like bad period, right? But there's very few practices that are, there's no practice that's universally applicable, right? Different systems need different practices. And a practice that worked for you in your 20s doesn't necessarily work for you in your 30s or when you're pregnant or when you're postpartum or uh, when you've had an accident or whatever. So it's important to know what practices do and holotropic breathing particularly produces a peak state. And then if you have a very healthy system, that peak state dissolves and then you kind of kind of come down from it and you integrate and you move on. But if your system isn't healthy, you actually have to draw from your adrenals and you have depletion in other areas. Right? And with breast, pra breast pranayama of other kinds, they can be super useful for specific things, but they are essentially an attempt to trick the nervous system into a state that it's not. Now, that can be super useful, right? If you're having a panic attack, let's say, you do want to trick your, your, your nervous system into downregulation, right? So you say, okay, I'm fucked up right now. I need to regulate. Okay. <gasps> That's a good regulation breath, right? Two small inhales, long exhale. Um, it's called a physiological sigh. It's the quickest way to de-escalate the system. But is an attempt to do what the body does naturally if it's properly, let's say, rewilded, right? So the way we go at it is essentially we regulate the system so the system can regulate itself versus you going, body, I know way better than you do, so I'm going to do you, right? Which is what a lot of breath practice is used for, while you could say, hey, body, just do you, right? But that takes a bit of work and trust, and often you do need to have some shortcuts in your toolkit because you're in dire straits. Very, very specific trauma therapeutic things so it might be good to go to his therapist with him or, or find a trauma therapist who can really fine tune that because there's, like you said, there's several things at play. Um, one of the things I didn't say in this lecture because it has not, not so much to do with embodiment, but of course uh, a triggered trauma or a trauma response has a strongly disembodying effect, but also dissociative effect. And dissociative effect and disembodying effect are hand in hand, so to speak. You can't feel your body, but you're also kind of dislocated in your mind. And so the problem with that is that when somebody has dissociative moments in the, in the trauma trigger, they're actually not there. Yeah. So, so um, dissociation goes from zero to a hundred, so to speak, zero being, uh, or, or one, let's say, from one to a hundred, one being slight dislocation, 
a hundred being full on psychosis where you lose in, like any contact with the real world. And so it sounds like he's somewhere in the 80% situation, let's say, right? He's, he's, he's not psychotic, but he's far enough gone that he no longer is capable of controlling his environment. So in that state, um, in that state, he isn't the person he is when he's not in that state. And because it's a fight or flightish kind of dissociative uh, behavior, you can also not trust him to behave appropriately. So the problem with that is that his trauma response will over time create a trauma response in you because you are in fact unsafe. That's not uh, a figment of your in imagination. He's not in control of his faculties, which equals danger. So now every time you are, he's in, he is in that state, you are in danger. So now you have trauma patterns around his trauma patterns. And then, of course, what typically happens in a relationship, you have some version of that, is that then when you are kind of, you know, a bit frozen or dislocated and he comes back, he goes, what the fuck's wrong with you? Right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, so, and then, of course, you are supposed to get it back together because he's got it back together. And then you get blamed for not being as connected as you could be when really you're just recovering from having had, uh, you know, a full-on episode uh, foisted on you, right? And so that's one thing that he needs to understand and that's best done with a therapist where you need to say to him with a therapist, look, you don't understand what this does to me. And you cannot expect me to just go back to normal because I am now feeling the way you are feeling, right? And, and I don't have those early childhood patterns, so I'm, it's a fresh thing. And I don't have any way of coping with it other than keep my shit together till you are okay again. And then I need to de-escalate as well. And when you now want me to be with you, I actually can't do that, right? And that's hard to understand when people are not physically violent, but it doesn't make any difference if it's physical or not. Well, it does make a difference too, you know, the body, but meaning it's different when it's verbal than when you get beaten up, but it's not in the nervous system, meaning um, you have the same thing. And unless he can understand that and, uh, and learn to give you the space to de-escalate as well, it's not a workable relationship really because you're constantly putting yourself into harm's way willingly and often what happens in those situations is that people who are, um, you know, the partners go, well, I have to have uh, empathy I need to love him through this. I need to understand. I need to help him. And that's true enough on one level. But the thing that you're forgetting is you need to help you by not getting attacked like that all the time. You know? So the, the important piece there is that if this goes on, how long have you been together? Yeah. So if this goes on too long, you you lose touch with reality in the sense that 
you no longer know how not okay that is on your system. Right? And then you say to me, how can I help him? Right? question is, how can you help you? That's the only thing that we need to care about at this point. Right? Where you need to get out, um, have a safe word. Uh, if he can't respond to a safe word, which can be done, right? you, can, you can sit with a partner and say, okay, when I say this word, you need to leave the house. And if you can't do that, then I need to leave the house. And when you are done with your thing, um, you need to de-escalate, I need to de-escalate, and I cannot be expected to behave as if nothing happened. Right? And then over time, desensitize him enough to, the, to his inner behavior that he can at least hear the word. That often helps. But unless he can self-regulate, I would not suggest you try helping him. Right? Because what you're essentially saying is, my trauma doesn't matter, I'm attending to his. You could learn techniques to calm him down, you know, and all of that. But every time you do that, you're saying to your own body, you don't matter. Right? Um, you're going to buckle down and get, keep your shit together to help him. And that's not your job. Right? doesn't mean you don't love him. doesn't mean that you don't support him. None, none of that, that's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you need to love yourself and support yourself and protect yourself as much or more than him. And that's super, super important. Because yeah. otherwise it's, it's going to be just all about him while your trauma constantly increases. Yeah. And with 46... Yeah, that's a substantial amount of, um, let's say, learned behavior accumulated in his nervous system. It's going to take a moment to de-escalate. Yeah. So. so I'd say find a therapist or go with him to his therapist and s tell both of them what a profoundly traumatizing effect it has on your system and that it can't be expected that you then... Uh, behave as if nothing happened afterwards, just so that he doesn't feel as guilty about it. Mm -hmm.